0: Hey everyone, this is Anna Firmanov, and this is Modern Startup Marketing, a show that's shining a light on those startups that are taking their marketing efforts to the next level. And now to this episode, I'm so excited to have my friend and you know colleague at, at Kellogg uh, here on the uh, Startup Marketing Podcast. Gil um, he is the president and founder of Hyper, uh, which is a New York-based company started in 2013. He's raised $13 million in funding, Series A funding, and the exciting, amazing, cool uh, news of this year, we need more good news this year, is that it got acquired. Um, So there's so much, Gil, that I want to to you know to introduce you with you're like the king of influencer marketing. I would say if anybody's thinking about influencer marketing they, and they haven't talked to you, that is too bad for them um, because you basically know everything there is to know. So uh, we go back to, way back to um, our time in grad school, and I know that uh, and you've just been. Such a great resource for when I was working in, in the startup world and I would call you up and say, Gail, I'm experiencing this challenge right now. What would you do in this situation? And you were such a such a big help. Um, so I'm so happy to have you on here.
1: Thank you so much. It's so great to be on here. And, uh, you know, the feeling is mutual. Um, I feel like you know one of the biggest things out of business school is you meet people that um not only have, uh, end up having great careers that you can learn from and, and kind of lean on, but also just great people to be friends. And even if you see each other like once a year or once every five years, it feels like it was just the other day.
0: That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So let's jump right in. Um, I've got some some things I know the folks that are listening to this will will want to cover related to, to startups and um, and uh, the specific experiences that you've had in startup marketing. So first, let's start with um, give me your your pitch uh, about the co- about um, Hyper. Something that a six year old can understand. Um, yeah, who you're for, what problems you solve. Just a a quick pitch.
1: Yeah. So Hyper came out of this understanding that um, celebrity endorsements were a big thing for many years, and they promote a lot of. Uh, big brands but they weren't ac- accessible to anyone who wasn't the biggest and most wealthy brands um, and alongside with that was the this transition where social networks were allowing individual people to become influential in spe- in specific areas we wanted to build a tool that allows brands to one discover these people um, to engage with them in mass because they needed to activate a lot of them and three measure the performance of that engagement uh, so that was launched in 2013 um, and as you mentioned sold in 2020 and uh, became one of the bigger players in the space over that time
0: yeah it's amazing um, so and one of the things uh, before we get into like this the story really of how it all started um, 2013 not too far from 2011 was when we graduated from you know from grad school so just curious how how it actually began but uh, y- you almost like came up with a platform that, mimics the way that companies are looking at data from like a digital marketing perspective. So doing that from, from, uh, for an influencer marketing perspective, can you tell me more about that? Like how, how did you come up with that? And how do you think about that?
1: I think it's, you know, you hit the nail on its head. It's, it's marketing 101, but it just had to be applied. And I think the early days we were walking around saying influencer marketing is just marketing. And I remember I had this article on ad week that I put, that I wrote, that became you know a mini mini viral thing because it said traditional marketing rules still apply to influencer marketing you still need to understand what your messaging is you still need to target a specific audience you still need to find a channel which is the influencer that can convey that message and we were just building tools that translated that entire process into activating influencer marketing but really um you know if you spend a day in business school that's probably the first lesson you learn about marketing and so um we didn't feel we were being so innovative we just felt like okay there's a there's an audience that really needs to work with these influencers and it's very manual and and labor intensive to do it today let's build tools that automate some of the process so that we can help them do it um but that didn't happen straight out of business school straight out of business school i actually had a really really hard time finding a job you know we went to You know we went to one of the best business schools in the world and um i was under the illusion that simply by going to that school i would be recruited by all the best companies in the world and what and and desired but i i came completely unprepared i what you know my background was i was a lawyer i was switching countries switching role um in a language my english wasn't as good as it is today and i was doing very poorly on interviews, barely found an internship, um, ended up um, getting some offers for a job late in the game in the second year. But I also became involved with a startup that was heavily lev- heavily reliant on working with celebrities. So I ended up doing deals, um, even though it wasn't my role, somebody had to do it, doing deals with celebrities to promote the product. And it was very expensive, very inefficient. And all these all these rules that I learned in business school about Identifying target audiences and measuring—all that didn't exist in the world that I was um, that I was uh, working in. And so, when when I left that company and started Hyper, I wanted to build a tool that I would have used, um, and that other marketers would hopefully connect with as well.
0: That makes sense. Um- Yeah. I mean, it's true though. It's very competitive when you are in business school, when you get out of business school, you're with a lot of other bright minds. So uh, do not believe what they say. Like (laughs) nothing will be easier. It will only get harder. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And and it it wasn't, you know, it had to do uh, looking back, you know, a lot of it had to do with my um, expectations because you know some things that when i came in you know my legal career was my entire resume and it, it and i was very proud of it but turned out that it wasn't really helping me get marketing jobs so it required a rethinking of you know where should i be interning what should i be doing over the summer and uh, you know a little bit like an entrepreneur you come in with these assumptions and the first year or two are just exploration and figuring out what customers want and i i realized i was the product i had to change what i was selling because people aren't looking for lawyers who want to do some marketing, they're looking for real marketers.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> that's absolutely true. So that's interesting. So what did you have to change about your approach and about your messaging from your prior life to the, the new one?
1: You know, so a legal career is very driven by the types of clients that you've worked with and the, the size of the deals that you've closed with. A marketing uh, career, especially when you come in for junior or mid-level roles, is, is really driven by the way you think you know and they'll give you situations they'll give you scenarios they'll want to know you know can you come out with a solution that is broader than the cookie cutter solution now of course there are th- certain things you know that are just the rules you have to know how to use uh you know, if you're going to be a digital marketer you need to, to know how to use google adwords right and, and facebook's advertising it's just a tool that you need to know how to use but you need to also show that you really know how to research and understand your specific audience and how you can create unique ways to engage them and hook them in. And those were just things that uh, my resume and my interviews did not convey because I was so focused on telling a different successful story. I probably would have gone plenty of jobs at law firms if I were interviewing for law firms.
0: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also had a switch in my career Um, so I was going from consulting to into marketing and like I you know at first the brand management path so I would have to agree with you that they I think if I kept going the consulting route it would have been way easier but I wanted to get out of that I wanted to go the the marketing route so really proving that you can do it even though your background is in a different industry that was a tough part
1: that's very entrepreneurial you know people don't think of it that way because you're in business school and it's, it's in some ways is is the least entrepreneurial thing you could do because you're getting you know one hundred fifty thousand dollars in debt that's um, right. <laughs> but you you have to evolve and as a startup my my theory is when you invest in early stage startups or you work with early stage startups the odds of them actually doing what they told you uh by the time they exit uh, you know is very low simply because um they're going to find out a lot of things that they, they believe in but are not true.
0: That's right. Yes, uh, I just just to cover that part of the conversation, I I talk to um, startups right now and work on stuff for them, like their website. And they're like, well, I don't know, maybe we should tweak that. Maybe that's not the right way we should say it. And what I end up telling them is it's fine for now. It's not going to stay this way. This is what it is now. This is your message now. This is your marketing collateral now. Trust me, it's going to change over and over and over. You're going to find new things. You need to be looking for those new things. You're not static. And that's the exciting part of marketing in in the startup world. So tell me, how many people did you start with and kind of how did your team grow? Like from when the company started in 2013 and kind of talk me through like when you raised your first series of, of funding and how your team grew from, from there.
1: So I, I was lucky, the company that I left, uh, the investors and I had a very good relationship. So when I started, they gave me some initial seed capital to start with and I had uh, found a great guy to who was a technical person to join me on the team. It was just the two of us for really the first more than a year. Um, you know, we tried to get into Y Combinator, we didn't make it we tried to make it into, you know, we we, we tried to pitch investors left and right, we built this prototype that was kind of cool. Uh, we got a few customers who were willing to pay something for that prototype. Um, and we just kept hearing no, again, and again, and again, from investors saying, you know, we don't think this is big enough, you must be crazy, because Um, Who's going to buy products from these random people online? And and we were saying, you don't understand. That's where the market's moving. And we started asking ourselves, are we crazy ourselves? And we were lucky. You know, I I think probably I was, this probably would have been my last or second to last meeting before I gave up. I met, uh, I was introduced to a guy named Charlie Fetterman who runs Silver Tech Ventures, which is. Uh, You know, later on today we'll talk about what I do today. But uh, was the venture arm of the Silverstein family, and they were starting a program, and he got it immediately. Um, But he was way more sophisticated than we were. So you know, he looked at the idea and he said, "You know, Gil, you told me some. You know, I've seen fifty companies pitch influencers, but you said something really interesting to me about this. You said that influencers are really a commodity, and that's interesting because most of the companies that I've met with, they want to get all the influencers to work with them, and." And get the best influencers so that they're better than the other companies. But what you're saying, which is interesting, is that you don't really care who the influencer is; you care who their audience is, and you can find 50,000 alternatives because of the technology you have. So he kind of he liked the concept, and then he said, "The only problem is that you're you're saying that, but you're running the other business. You know, you're running the business everyone's running. So what's the what's the story?" And I said, "Yeah, it's easier to do it that way." And he said, "You know, it's like the joke about the guy who's who's, who's like looking for a coin, and people say to him." What are you doing? He said, I lost a coin, so I'm looking for it. And they said, why are you looking over here? He said, well, uh, did you lose it over here? He says, no, I lost it over there, but there's a, a street light over here, so it's much easier for me to look. And he said, if you know that, go focus on a business like that. So we had to give up a lot of what we'd done and restarted. And it was um, thanks to, to his support and investment. And it's not just him, it's the whole team at Silverstein. Um, we were able to to go and do that and build a much more robust and healthier business um, the hard way, right, without taking the, the shortcuts of, okay, there's a customer who's willing to pay me. It's not exactly what I want to do, but I will do it because I need to show revenues. Um, and it's a very confusing world as a startup. So I actually at this point totally forgot what you asked me. But
0: that's Oh, that's effort. okay. That's that's going to happen. So um, I'm curious, like, how did your, t- your team – the size of your team, the different um, folks that were on the team, how did you start building it at the er, you know early stage? and then how ha- and then you got that C funding and then mm-hmm. for the the you know how did your team grow and then you got the series A funding? Just curious how that all worked out. yeah,
1: so my my belief was you know as an early stage int- entrepreneur, you have to do all the sales because you have to meet the customers. you have to understand. So I only hired technical people initially. Um, and I did a little bit of sales and, you know, we had a product that was in a market that people didn't really want to meet us because it didn't, you know, if you're working at an agency and everything's working, why do, you, why do I need to go see this crazy startup guy? But when we did get in front of them, a lot of times we would get them, we could see that we hit something with them. They're like, okay, wait, this actually makes a lot of sense. I could use it. Um, but I needed to be there because I needed to see what resonates and what doesn't resonate. So I, we mainly focused on building the, the tech team. And once we felt like we found that initial fit where suddenly we had three or four clients who were willing to pay for it and they were actually using it, not just willing to pay for it, but we could see on our dashboard that, wow, these guys are logging in every day and they're using this thing. And, and you know, when, when something doesn't work, they're, they're in touch with us and they care about this product and they want us to keep building it. That's when I started hunting for my first salesperson. I was lucky to meet a guy who had been an industry veteran and had been very passionate about the space, a big believer in the space. Uh, named uh, Ryan Berger and um, he you know he's still with the company even after it's been sold uh, and he's turned out to be an amazing salesperson uh, bringing some of the biggest brands um, but that was that a little is later. so
0: hard by the way to find amazing salespeople early on for startups that is a very big pain point
1: you have to be the amazing salesperson at the yeah. beginning even though you're limited and I'm not a salesperson like I can tell you this I get stomach cramps before I have to go into a sales meeting and I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing and I don't know if I'm over schmoozing or under schmoozing or you know um yeah am I overselling am I underselling should I should I appear eager should I appear reluctant I don't know and some people it comes so naturally to them but you have to go through that process to understand how people react to your product because when you're an early stage entrepreneur, you're surrounded by people who really want to help you and they really want to make you feel good and they know how hard what you're doing is and they'll tell you all the good things that they see about your product. But when, until you have to ask them to write a check and then you get the truth, right? So you have to be that person. Like if it's secondhand, you're not going to get that same answer. Um, So we started selling, and and, you know the team was growing bit by bit, and then we went to raise capital. And like, uh, how many
0: people is it? Just like an like a estimate of the number.
1: Trying to remember around that time, it was probably 2015. So for two years, I'd been running around. We were probably six or seven people.
0: Okay. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, You know, at the height of the company, we were probably like 50 people, but um, we were. We then raised our first big round, which was about five million dollars um from some really thankfully luckily really fantastic investors that were very supportive and helpful um, and that gave us the ability to grow we grew quickly to a larger number of um of employees and a much higher uh, annual uh, market uh, mrr so monthly monthly recurring revenue our whole model shifted to subscription so we had a healthier business But it also became more and more competitive, you know, as we as 2018, 2019 approached, we were already a six or seven year old business. Um, It just became or five or six year old business. It just became harder to differentiate. All these unique advantages that we had um, were being imitated or companies were saying that they could do the same things. And we were in a constant race to keep up. So the company had to grow. We had to raise more capital. And it became this interesting situation where, Um, supposedly you've achieved everything you said you'd achieve, but every day is like a new grind starting over. So there's no like smooth sailing at some point with startups, at least I've never experienced it
0: right it's just it gets more choppy choppy and choppier and choppier
1: yeah
0: yeah <laughs> the, more, the more money you raise um okay so you raised that series a and then um that was like 2018 or something that like was that, 2015. Right? oh 2015 and then you, yeah. you started growing the company more and more you said at the height it was 50 people mm-hmm. and just recently this april it got acquired so how did you get to that point like how did you did that? T- how did that acquisition come about? Like, did you know it was coming? Did it take a couple of years, or was it fast? Like, how did that happen?
1: Yeah, so you know, it became more and more competitive in the market. And one of the things that we we kept wondering is, are there vertical moves that we could make, and we partner with someone that's either bigger than us or in, an, in a similar business or a close business that could benefit from our technology? And we had we kept getting offers, but our investors didn't want to. Uh, accept any of those offers and I, I had been more more interested in getting these and accepting the offers because I'd been running it for eight years now and I felt like growth uh, wasn't as happening as fast as I wanted it at this pa- at this pace and I knew that the next step would go and try to raise a 15 20 million dollar round would would dilute me significantly would require me to work you know 10 times harder and I don't know um, how fast I can grow the business because there's so much competition around um but our investors were completely no no sale no sale and um COVID came around and there was this like window of like maybe three weeks where people thought the world was going to end and they just <laughs> yeah. need liqu- liquidity so my investors were saying you know what maybe we should consider some of these offers and i took that as all right go go accept one of the offers there was one um specific offer that i really really liked the people and i i felt like they could do something really, really big with what we were doing. So that's the one I pursued, even though it wasn't the highest offer. Um, but it was kind of a structured deal where there was cash involved, but also um, the ability to own stock in the newly formed entity that they acquired. So um, I'm one of the few beneficiaries of uh, of COVID, you know, and, and unfortunately I don't wish, I wish COVID never come along, but it did have for us like that positive spin.
0: Interesting. Okay, so there is some light this year for, for folks. <laughs> Especially
1: yeah. if they're working on vaccines or something like that. That's right. Yeah. That's
0: right. That's right. Vaccines um, and
1: influencer marketing. That's pretty much, yeah. that's pretty much it. really. Right. right. right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like not, not, not food delivery or not, not uh you know that one's doing delivery. okay too actually <laughs> I mean,
1: at least if, if i look at my wallet that that space is doing okay
0: dominos is doing pretty well yeah, so yeah. we cannot we can't we can't deny that um great so let's talk about marketing because this is uh you know the modern startup marketing podcast so uh, we have kind of talked more high level around the startup and your team and your growth and and then um, getting it acquired which is super exciting um what would you say was the the um most recently what was working really well for you in terms of marketing like what marketing channels um and you could say influencer marketing because no, you know I it will. so well yeah. <laughs> but maybe there are other uh channels that you want to talk about um but yeah go ahead
1: well you know i think the the, the interesting thing i'm going to answer a little bit more broadly but the I used to do this all the time. I would go to um, like agencies where the people were media buyers, and I would say to people, like, and I would speak in front of them, and I would say, who's been on the internet today? And everybody would raise their hand. And I'd say, and who's seen an ad today on the internet? And everybody would raise their hand. And then I'd say, what was it for? And nobody raises their hands. Nobody remembers the last ad. Do you remember the last ad you saw?
0: No, I don't look at them. Right. I don't we, click on that. I don't. Some Somebody does, though, apparently, right? There are people well, that click on them. And,
1: arguably, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, but, but, yeah. but the, the point is, you know, you sit in a room with people who spend millions of dollars on online advertising, and they don't remember the last ad that they saw. And if they do remember, it's typically one of two reasons. One is, or really one of three reasons. One is they got really annoyed, like, how do they know that I am buying, you know, Hey, uh, cream to make my hair grow back, right? Like, how does this advertiser know, and why am I seeing this? Uh, that's one thing, and then you're probably not going to buy the product because you're really annoyed at, at, at that. The second is, you know, wow, this is amazing. I wanted to go on vacation, and, and, and that hit the nail on its head. That happens occasionally, you know. And then the third is really like, okay, yeah, you know, that's an interesting product, but if you check, they'll remember that they saw the ad. They won't remember which brand or where to go or anything like that. So you have to retarget them a lot of times. But concurrently with that, we're seeing a tremendous growth in the investment in in digital marketing. And so what we're seeing is, I think for 2020 is the first time the US has spent over $100 billion on online marketing. The world has spent $400 billion on ads that no one is seeing. And if you think about the reason, it's because so many people are spending ads trying to mess with your mind you know the now it does work sometimes subconsciously and that's where it doesn't really catch when I ask that question where well, you might be on there you're like oh okay cool you'll click on it at that moment or yes. you'll see it so many times it like gets engraved in your head or you see enough coffee ads that you go into Starbucks and you buy coffee so I, it, it's not completely ineffective but it's definitely less ineffective than than it used to be and if you look at like say um, different pages on the web like the you know, Forbes homepage or, or one of those, you'll see, and you, and you have an ad blocker on, you'll see maybe 20 or 30 items get removed by the ad blocker. And you have to wonder, how did the page of like, you know, a respectable publication get so many ads on it? Um, and who thinks that somebody can consume 20 or 30 ads in, in one bite? And my my guess is, you know, somebody had one ad on it and it was making this many dollars. And then it started converting not as well. So he said, I'll throw in another ad. And then, you know, that wasn't converting so well. So he said, okay, I'm going to hide that little thing where you can, I'm going to make it pop up and I'm going to hide that little X so you can't shut it down. And I'm going to get engagement, but you're getting this unhealthy engagement, right? You're getting these people who are like, okay, how do I click on this? Or I click on, but, and some of that converts into sales, but as a brand, it's really harmful to your, your presence because a lot of people remember you negatively or like, how did this brand know about me this way? Um, so Yeah, like I,
0: visiting those articles, I, I can only read this much text because up here is the ad and over here and over here. And I'm like trying to get right. away from and the ad. it's like going to slide
1: up as you go. And, and you're literally <laughs> You oh. you're not even on the page for the ads, right? So, so I think those channels were very effective early on because we were very good at targeting. We were used to a world where it's very hard to track. Nobody knew who signed the ads. You know, you had an ad in the newspaper. You had no idea who looked at it. So it was, they were very effective. They're still effective to a degree, but they've also become overcrowded and aggressive. And we have, as we go younger, people have literally developed, evolved into ignoring them and, and not seeing them, and advertisers need to look in other ways. And that's where one of those channels is influencer marketing, right? But it's not the only channel. I mean, there's a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of community building. There's a lot of event-based, which obviously now is harder marketing. There's a lot of um, experience-based marketing. Those things are very effective, and people are looking for ways to scale them uh, because the one advantage and the real reason why people buy so much digital marketing the way that it used to be is that it's so easy to scale, right? It's going well, I'm going to spend a lot more and that's great. And my boss will be happy because it's costing us $8 to acquire a customer and that's within our budget. So great. Um, but in the long run you really have to look for these other channels and it's a really interesting world because, um, when you sit in those rooms with those people, they'll, um, they'll leave that room and they'll continue doing exactly what they did before, which is continue buying these ads knowing that people aren't watching them. So there's a very, very long learning curve, and it's part of the reason why I really became aggressive in my uh, working with younger students and things like that and educating about this. Because I say you have to have agents of change, and there's a generation change in all these agencies, and they have the interns who come in, the early employees who come in, have to be aware of this the idea that, you know, there are other ways to reach audiences that are far more healthy and effective.
0: That's right. I think that that is such an, an amazing point. You've got these um, at startups, they're hiring young people, which is part of the draw for me. I loved being around people that are young and hungry and interested in building that fun culture. Uh, but then they end up thinking, okay, well, if this is how they want me to do it, then it's probably the way it should be done. And but that's not really the right mode of thinking. Well, you,
1: have, you have two ways to stand out, right? When you go into a new place, whether you're a startup or whether you're an employee. And I, when I talk to the college students, I was talking about it. I said, there's one way, which is you're going to be the straight A student. You're going to go there, you're going to do everything they say exactly the way they do it, and you're going to do it a little better than the other people in the class, and then when they have to choose who to hire, they're going to hire you, and then you're going to sit there for two years, and they're going to give you a raise, and they're going to you get the next title, and you get it. And maybe, maybe someday you'll climb up to the head of the pyramid. Or you can come in and tell them something they don't know. And, and then you might find yourself on a fast track to, then you're going to get the CEO saying, wait, what is this thing about influencer marketing? Hold on a second. Who's the person? Uh, well, I don't care if they're an intern. Bring them here. I want to hear the story. So you you can kind of choose your own path, and it depends on you. But as a marketer, you're marketing yourself. And if you think about how you would market a product, you would want it to be innovative. You would want it to be attention grabbing. Um, so treat yourself the same way. Um, is my advice. And you don't have. I don't have a colorful personality, and I'm not gonna show up in you know. Yes, you great- do. No, no, but you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Like, I'm not the kind of guy who's going to show up in a dress just to shock people, or no, um, you know, I'm not the guy who's going to get you know be the in the middle of the dance floor at a party, you know. Or, but I, I it doesn't mean I have to be the wallflower too. I, you know, uh, you 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 have something to say, and you can stand out in that way. And so I, I say to people, you don't have to necessarily come in and be the loudest and. But if you have things that people are going to listen to and say, wow, you really made me think about something that I've, you know, I haven't thought about it that way. That's the best way to get into their, you know, get some free rent over here. Um, So they think about you and they they bring you into meetings and they start appreciating your opinion. And so they have a huge opportunity, the people coming in and the startups Mm -hmm. as well as a startup. You have, I, I always advise, the, if you went into a meeting and the person left the meeting saying, wow, I did not think about it that way, you have a much better chance of closing the deal.
0: Absolutely. The, the other thing I was going to say is, besides just bringing your opinion, also something cool you can do, because startups are lean and scrappy, and you can always find a way, especially these days, to like figure it out and not spend a ton of money, is to, to try it and then show the proof. Like you did it a different way, and it actually worked. So that's something I think that founders, CEOs, you know, the the exec leadership team is totally open to to hearing, and um, and I'm yeah. totally with you and, there. And, and,
1: and it's kind of tough, you know. I, I say this to founders a lot of times. If if everybody gets your idea immediately. You're probably not doing something that unique like if i if you come in and you say yeah this is what we're doing and everyone's like oh that makes sense okay cool it's probably not like groundbreaking the challenge is that if people are saying wait you're crazy then you're either crazy or you're really just smarter than they are so you there's a challenge there of trying to figure out do i really understand this business better than they do or am i just really on a crazy idea and that's where you want to surround yourself with people who are you know who've gone through it who, who can think with you and and go through a thought process to tell you: Are you a genius, or are you? It's uh, crazy. crazy, but it's not really being crazy. It's just have you made the right adjustments to finding
0: the way. That's to do right. It? That's right. So we we were we were starting on the path of talking about marketing for hyper, and as part of that, I I'd ask like what channels, um, especially like most recently, I've been working really well, and I I know you want to talk about influencer marketing, so feel free. But how like. Going to, on a deeper level of exploration here, how do you use influencer marketing if that's what you want to talk about first for Hyper?
1: Well, let's talk again. I'll, I'll answer a little more broadly. I think influencer marketing is a way to get attention. And I think marketing starts with getting attention. So you can make the most beautiful ad, but if nobody sees it, what's the point, right? So when I think about marketing, I really think about uh, who is the audience and then what can I do to get their attention? And, uh, you know, long before my influencer marketing days, I had this system that I called The Grenade, um, which basically what it does is, I'll give you an example, okay? Let's say we're targeting people who uh, love Oprah Winfrey, right, And uh, or, 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 you know, and we want to get them onto a website. Um, one way to do that is to go the traditional route and say, okay, this is Facebook. I'm going to buy ads. I'm going to target people that they say love Oprah Winfrey, and I'm going to... um Show them the ads a, a million times, and some of them will click on and will get to my website. Or um, I can go to the Oprah Winfrey uh, chat group with an account that says, "I don't understand why you guys like Oprah Winfrey. I think she sucks." Um, and that account has a link next to it that says that with the website that I want to promote, um, for example, or or their own website with ads to other websites. The result is immediately that i have a different uh you know i create this negative feeling with them but i'm also going to get them all to clear out of the room and see who is this guy who is saying that oprah winfrey sucks so i can i drive traffic and i always used to call it a grenade because you you put in that message and you immediately see like motion to your website because people are like who's who's this person and why are they saying this and you know what's going on and so It's an it's a different funnel, but influencer marketing, in a way, is an extension of the grenade, right? Because um, the way people do influencer marketing, which I think is not very effective, is they'll say, "Hi, I'm uh, this influencer, and I love this product." Hashtag ad, which is not very effective. If you think about the way advertising is really effective, it's when it's really believable and it makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, if I told you, you know, you could pick one of two things, you know, Britney Spears to promote Pepsi. Or Michael Jordan to promote uh, Nike shoes. Um, most people would say, "Well, you know, I think not Michael Jordan for Nike shoes because he can wear the shoes in a game, and if he's wearing them in a game, they must be really good because he's he's not going to wear bad shoes to a game." Um, and by the way, he's probably a pretty good expert on what shoes are really good for athletes because he's been one for thirty years. And while I do under, I do believe that Britney Spears likes Pepsi. Um, she probably likes a lot. She likes a lot of drinks. There's no real like, correlation. So. Influencer marketing has to be ingrained into um, the advertiser. It has to be. It has to make total sense. As a fan, you have to look at it and say, "I'm not being sold to because, of course, this influencer would love that product. This is a product that's you know all about sustainability and environment. And this influencer, I've known them for ten years. That's all they talk about. Or you know, this helps women. With the other company we just saw, you know, they, it, it helps women with with um, hair loss after the age of uh, 40. And I know that the influencer that they're using, they're the spokesperson for that. They've always talked about it. They've shown, and not only that, they've, they're showing me what's happened with them using the product. So it requires a much deeper integration. And I think generally speaking with, with marketing, if you're doing it just by the book, you're, you're not, at this point, it's overcrowded. You're just going to land in a very overcrowded space. So you have to always be thinking a step further or thinking about how you bring in an approach that um, creates a different level of attention. So what did we do with Hyper now? is a deep secret. Um, you're not going to – I don't think I've ever told this story, but this is a true story of what we did. Um, so Hyper, what it would do initially, the initial very, very basic product, Um, would scan uh, an influencer, would take a sample of their audience, and then it would analyze that audience and it would say things like, um, okay, you're followed primarily by men or primarily by women, Uh, they're of this age group, they're, you know, located in these places, and um, they're, um, I don't know, you know, 10% of them is fake. Yeah. And, and so this is an industry that up until that point, people would buy based on followers. They'd say, oh, this person has a million followers. I'm very excited. And what we said is we said, well, you know, here's Kim Kardashian. She's got 100 million followers, but... Only seventy percent are women, so you already lost thirty million followers. And then only twenty-eight percent are in the U.S., so that's down to like uh, you know twenty million followers. And then her engagement rate is actually just one percent, so your post is going to be seen by two million followers, or you know whatever the math is. And then ten
0: percent are fake. <laughs>
1: right, and then by the way, ten percent or fifty percent are fake. Depends on. Uh, by the way, in Kim Kardashian's case, it's not a good example because obviously she's very strong, uh, but plenty of plenty of influencers um we kind of not you know we didn't make anything up but we were delighted to see that they were selling bullshit because by them saying hyper is terrible they were selling us because the people buying their services were already somewhat suspicious so when they would say oh you can't trust hyper you know the the, this is my real data Um, and we came in and say look we have no we have no you know beef in this fight. We're just giving you the data that we have according to our data, one, two, three. That was a great marketing channel for us. And in, in, in the early days, that's what got the viral spread in the industry where it was like, you know, I worked with this influencer. It didn't go that well. And now I looked at the hyper report and I kind of see why. Um, and, and what- So the
0: channel should, is almost like the, the channel is the report that you built that could prove that-
1: Influencers by having a large audience and saying that we're terrible, we're creating visibility for us. Um, and we knew we weren't we knew we weren't terrible. Um, but the only reason we were able to do that is because of the realization that they are a commodity, right? If we didn't accept that as a the truth, then um I'm sorry for the people
0: watching. that's okay, no problem. Uh,
1: so if we didn't accept that as the truth, and we were like the other companies who were trying to get all these influencers to work with them, we wouldn't be able to use that as a channel. So um just like really any anything you know it it initially created a lot of like fear within our investors you're gonna get in fights with some of these influencers but the approach was look if we're always if we are going to be the company that tells you the truth we're going to help you make decisions we're going to run into some fights um so we did and it and it created you know but it's almost like the pepsi challenge you know by coke acknowledging the pepsi challenge and giving Pepsi visibility. So they gave us visibility and they actually made us on their level when we were this small startup. None of them would ever imagine there were literally be five people in, in one room because we couldn't afford a second room. Um, you know, crunched together. Today, obviously nobody could do that. But we right. literally sit shoulder to shoulder on like this line of desks.
0: Yeah. That's uh, and we amazing. were the ones
1: causing that stir for people who have fifty million followers.
0: Yeah. So you almost you almost like you're like, oh, oh, this is great. They're creating this buzz for us. Right. It's almost like the free PR with you disagreeing with them and they then calling you out and saying that this is this is not like, why are you looking at Hyper? This is not a good company. They created that buzz. And then people got interested.
1: You always want to be a David versus Goliath. That's a great situation to be in. So find out who your goliath is if you're playing against microsoft and you're and you can make them the bully especially if they play along which is even better then great Uh, You know, there's an old story about, um, I forget which ice cream company, the Pillsbury, uh, Pillsbury and how they would stop other companies from competing with them. And the companies ran a campaign called What's the Pillsbury Doughboy Afraid Of? And it was making fun of the Pillsbury Doughboy. But by being this, people wanna align with the underdog. If you watch a sports game and you don't know any of the teams and one of them's behind, you're gonna root for them to come back almost always. It's just human nature. We we see someone who's the weaker person, we root for them and we wanna help them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we all want to make our startup look like the most successful and most powerful thing in the world. But sometimes it's very beneficial to have this big enemy who's trying to destroy you, whether it's the government or, you know, uh, the Russians or um, I don't know. You know, pick pick, there are one, pick your are lots of enemies
0: out there. bad yeah. guy uh,
1: yeah. for, for your industry and your generation. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's that's great. Okay, so um, what about from a marketing standpoint, the challenges? Like, what was really difficult? to figure out, um, I guess, you know, throughout the, the course of of hyper growing or maybe most recently, what was the biggest marketing challenge you guys had?
1: I think, you know, the biggest the biggest thing for us was that people we, we were kind of early for our industry, meaning um, things that today are common knowledge like everybody's doing influencer marketing when we started it we had to explain to people why they would do it and they literally thought we were crazy they said why would i hire some random person on instagram when i can just go on facebook and pay this much money and get some this many views um and even though we thought we were doing a good job explaining it, there was no real motivation for anybody to be the first mover. If you're somebody who works for an agency and everything's working and your job is safe and you're lined up for a promotion, do you really want to be the guy who brings in this software that helps you find influential people online? Uh, and you have to have you have to find people who are a very specific character. And so Ryan, when we brought him on board, um, the salesperson, he was very good at at finding those people and building a relationship with them and. It took, sometimes it took a year to close a client because there were so many gatekeepers we had to go through who didn't want to try something new or didn't want to take a risk. So. Who um, were you?
0: Who was your primary target? uh, Like your ideal person? Primarily
1: advertising agencies and brands uh, and the marketing person and brands. Um, The challenge was obviously, with agencies, a lot of them were old school and they were happy with the way things were going. With brands, they didn't want to do it on their own. They wanted us to run the campaigns for them. So um, we had to make a decision to give up a lot of money by saying, no, we don't run campaigns. You have to learn how to use a system and run campaigns on your own. And we probably gave up millions of dollars in business, but I, I didn't have the people to run the campaigns. I could I could work 30 hours a day and I wouldn't be able to to do all of it. So Yeah.
0: So the million-dollar question then is because I know a lot of startups that have come up with like ahead of our time ideas, right, and changing status quo. Um, how did you do it? How did you get them to uh, get interested in the idea, to see the pain points, to see a different like world that's opening up before their eyes? How did you? How did you do it?
1: Yeah. So you have to, and this this goes around to fundraising as well, but. As a, if you're ahead of your time, by the way, that's, that's the good scenario. A lot of times you're behind on your time, right? So the, the good scenario is you're ahead or you know if you're perfectly timed, great, but that's very rare. Um, if you're ahead of your time, that's probably the situation. You might be ahead of your time by, by a month and you might be ahead of your time by 10 years. So, And we've seen this with driving cars, like all these companies that have technologies for driving cars, I, self-driving cars, I, you don't see them on the street. So you have to flip the, the ball over, right? When you have investors who are all telling you, yeah, I'll join when somebody leads or you know, let me know how it's going and I'll join. You have to create a situation where the train is leaving the station. And so the biggest thing that you have to do as a marketer when you're dealing with an industry that's refusing to catch up is make people feel like others are already doing this. So I, I did a very aggressive, very, very aggressive social media campaign. We were spending an enormous amount of time and effort on PR um and social media um probably posted at least two three interviews a month uh in during those years um if you google a lot of them are still online spoke at conferences nonstop, and what i made sure to do was two things one i made sure to talk about how all the big names are using it so when we signed a big name company we would give them half off just so we could use their name and we would talk about how their competitors are already doing this and what you don't offer this so we we shifted it away from let me introduce you to this new technology to you don't have this you know that you know everybody else has this um, one in the converse and in, in the articles that I wrote it talked about how this mark this market is really suffering and and it's going to escape the people who don't play I started going to universities that recruited to um, you know I teach at Wharton but. Um, Um, really any university would let me speak Uh, at the time I was doing maybe once a week come to speak to their marketing classes and tell them you guys need to be the agents of change within your industries and a lot of those people now work at agencies who are now clients of hyper so it's kind of but I I would would literally I became um, an evangelist for this everywhere but you have to shift it to a place where you're not trying to convince people that there's a revolution coming you're trying to convince them that what do you mean? You're about to lose. You're about to be so far behind. You better wake yeah.
0: You up missed up. the boat really quickly,
1: <laughs> and you have to do the same thing with investors to a degree, right? So, yeah. um, as a founder, it shouldn't be too too rare for you. But you have to have somebody. If it's you, great. If it's not you, somebody who's ready to like stand on stage and yell, "What's wrong with you?" You know, you six more months and you're out of the, this market. Everybody's going to have this, um, and and it's a very hard um thing to do sometimes, but no matter what market you're in, you have to convince them that uh now's the time if you don't, then they're always gonna kick it kick the can down the road.
0: Mm-hmm. that's right um awesome okay, so then my my question to you is like what's your big aha marketing moment these past this past year it's been a crazy year. Uh, maybe you were thinking of like one thing at the beginning of the year, then you changed your thinking. To, you know, after March, um, like what's what's your big aha moment? Um, maybe it's a trend or it's a tactic. Would love to hear.
1: Yeah, I think you know, and so I I made an interesting thing. once I sold the company, I joined Silverstein Properties to help them think about what the, you know, what the office, what the residents should look like. Tell, 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 tell me more hear. about
0: Silverstein Properties because people yeah. listening might not know what yeah. that is. And yeah. yeah.
1: So Silverstein Properties is one of the biggest uh, real estate companies in New York. It owns the World Trade Center, which is, you know, the, the big thing, but about 40 billion square <laughs> feet, square feet of, of office space and residential buildings. And, you know, like any company it's been affected by, the challenges of one, people moving out of New York, not, not feeling comfortable coming back to the office and really a whole slew of challenges that come out, not, not comfortable riding the, the subway and anything you can think of is, is playing against real estate right now. Um, unless you, except for real estate in, in you know, green areas where nobody is sick. Um, and so most of the companies in the space have reacted with what you would imagine, which is dropping prices. Right. Either dropping prices or giving out really, really cheap concessions um, with this idea of that, okay, if we, you know, it's pretty simple, you know, the, the demand curve, you know, the supply and demand curve, we'll just go lower on the curve and we'll get people who are willing to pay less. Um, it's not a healthy strategy in real estate because as you may know, there are laws that limit how much you can raise rent. So if somebody comes in at $2,000 instead of $3,000 a month, and you can only raise it by 2% every year. Uh, you're stuck with that person for a long, long time. It's not like, okay, I'm going to give a discount right now and, and I'll do it. And the biggest um, thing I want, I, you know, I wanted to bring into the industry, and I think you know we're we're looking at is is the concept of value versus the concept of price, right? So, yes, I am aware right now that in New York City there's an abundance of apartments, and I could probably get more for my money. Um, now, I, as, as somebody who can sell to you can say to you, well, you know, I know you have $3,000, but I'll, I'll give this to you at $2,500 because I want to close you. Or I could say, you know what, $3,000 is also going to get you an apartment that otherwise would have cost $3,400. And in your mind, you know, the value is the same. For me, I didn't have to drop prices. Or I could say, um, you know what, I'm going to give you, here's something we're doing in our buildings. You know, it's not public yet, but about to release. Um, the Pampered Package. So you live in our buildings, you never have to clean. We'll send you a cleaner every week. We'll do your laundry every week. And by the way, here's $5,000 to a ghost kitchen. We can order food every night, so you never have to cook. Um, and that, in a loan, that would cost me similar to the concession, but, but, it, but, it, but I don't have to give a concession. My price point stayed the same, and so I'm not affecting my long-term uh, future. So um, part of it has to do with, like, how the positioning that you choose in marketing is so important. Um, if you look at industries like airlines and others where where price is always the place where people go, and then you look at companies like Virgin, who's an exception in that airline, you see that there's always room to, to think about it differently. Um, and even in real estate, which is like the, the, one of the most ancient, uh, uh, slow moving industries in the world, there probably a lot of opportunities to do that as well. So the same thing for your startup. Don't, um, Yes, you need somebody who knows how to run Google Ads. Yes, you know, you need somebody who knows how to work with Outbrain or Taboola. But don't let that be the only thing that's running your startup. Like you need to stand out in a way that really creates attention. And and um if you, it 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 doesn't have to come to you like right away, you know, that's what Anna's for, you know, like sit with Anna and, or sit with someone like me <laughs> and say, "How do I really stand out?" and like just chuck ideas out there and 90% of them will be terrible, but there might that might light a spark that then leads you into doing something special.
0: Yeah, I think that's the fun part of being in marketing is thinking through the creative ideas of how to help uh, companies stand out. And especially B2B where um, people fall back on like the traditional and the old ways of doing things and it doesn't have to be that way. It could be really fun. Um, so kind
1: of great. More. Yeah.
0: <laughs> great. Uh, well, we covered a lot of ground here. Um, And I know that so I'd love to ask you some other stuff that uh, that we had um, highlighted here. So um, if you were to create a podcast, what would you what would it be about? How how, what would you want to talk about? I'd be curious to hear about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, it would be, I would look for brilliant marketers. I would look for like, who's done something really unique. And every once in a while, these stories come out. You know, even if you look at, say, you remember the fire Festival, which if you remember, was a yeah, festival with influencers and everyone, you know, it was a complete failure, but the marketing was genius and nobody gives the marketing the credit it deserves because.
0: Nothing the story would enable, was so crazy and bad,
1: <laughs> but, but nothing would enable such a huge failure if the marketing wasn't so great you know so what they did was really interesting you know everybody they did the exact opposite exact opposite of what you would think they just had all these influencers post an orange square on their on their on their page they didn't promote anything but everybody was like what's this orange square and they're like oh it's a secret we'll tell you in a week that created so much buzz and like an orange square is exact opposite of what any marketer would tell you to do they would tell you you need a beautiful colorful blah 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 video of what's going to happen in it's the other way around and it's really really smart so those kinds of, i would highlight those kinds of stories i would talk to those kinds of marketers and I would say how did you come up with this idea and um and what what brought you to that point now i'm way too lazy to do that so i'm never going to start that so if anybody's <laughs> listening wants to start that and have me come on as a guest every once in a while i'm happy to do that
0: <laughs> <laughs> good to know good to know you're also yeah. extremely busy so that that makes sense um Let's see. Uh, you know, I'd love to hear just about your the family. Like how's the family doing? How are the kids doing? How have you guys managed to to stay sane throughout this time and to continue to be productive and in some cases like oh maybe overly productive um during this yeah.
1: year? I think I mean for me it's been Amazing because I get to see the kids. Something that as a startup founder, you know, you you leave before they go to school and you come back like for bedtime. Because and not, even then you kind of ran out of the office just to make it for bedtime. And now you know we're we're in the same place. And I was they'll disturb my phone calls. I'll find out that they've installed malware on my computer and all kinds <laughs> of stuff. You know, trying to see their TV shows or whatever they want. But for me, it's amazing. I mean, I, I grew up uh, with, you know, in a family that we spend a lot more time with our parents than we used to spend with our kids. So I don't know how I'm going to keep that going, but it's definitely something I want to keep investing in. And then, mm-hmm. you know, my wife and I work, you know, she has her desk. You don't see her, but she's like really just down the block. And we go into the office every once in a while, but um, mostly we stay home. So it's been uh, for me. I mean, other than never seeing my parents and, you know, not being able to travel anywhere, there have been some positive, like, day-to-day sides for it.
0: Awesome. Uh, which
1: yeah. has been nice. Yeah.
0: Well, Gail, this has, been, this has been great. I love catching up with you. I always have. And I Likewise. appreciate you coming on to the show and talking about your startup. And, and um, we, we talked about some great nuggets. So I can't wait mm-hmm. for the show to release and, and for other folks to hear about it. So thank you again. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Modern Startup Marketing. New episodes are dropping regularly, so make sure you're following wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Anna Firminov, or visit my website, firminovmarketing.com.